you guys have your Bibles ready, I want to invite you to turn over to Galatians chapter 4 for our time together this morning. And I want to offer you a copy of the Bible if you don't own one. We'd love to give you one. We've provided some at the center of each aisle, up under the chairs in the center. You can just get somebody to pass you one. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have it. We're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 4, the end of the chapter, picking up where we left off last week. And sometimes when you're working through a book of the Bible like this one, you come across passages that remind you that the world of the Bible is bigger than yours, that its origins are different from your time and your place, that its horizons stretch further than what you can see. This text that we're going to consider this morning is one of those places. It's been called the most difficult section of the letter to the Galatians for a host of reasons, and you know I'm only through four of the chapters so far, but in my own opinion, that's exactly what this text is, the most difficult part of the letter. For a lot of reasons, there are details in this text that aren't explained to us in the text. There are allusions that the text makes that aren't intuitive to us, and at the heart of the text is a story that offends our moral judgment for good reason. And all of the text, all these details, all these allusions, they're all aimed at questions that you maybe didn't come in here asking this morning so all that's to say we've got our work cut out for us this morning and it's good work to do and one of the things that we believe that we're staking everything to in our life as a congregation is that God has spoken the God who made us has spoken to us and that he's done so in the Bible and that means that every part of it the parts that are obvious and clear and easily encouraging And the parts that are more difficult are all words he's wanted us to have. And that means that when we come to a passage like the one we'll read here in a moment that doesn't immediately land on us, well, there we've got ourselves an opportunity. I like what C.S. Lewis put it in his book on the Psalms. He talked about how some some of the Psalms are hard and the, the ones that are hardest are the ones that sometimes yield the best game. He said, if you're a hunter... Where there's cover, that's where you look for game, you know? Probably not going to be, unless you're feeding those deer corn out in a big field, you know, cheating. Chances are, like, the thicket is where you're going to find the game that you're seeking. You want to look under what you, what, what, what's blocking you. And I think that's what we're going to find here today. I hope that's what we'll find today. That in this passage, separated from us on so many levels from what we know and take for granted, in this, in this passage where the foreignness of the Bible is most obvious to us, we'll find that its foreignness is also its greatest asset to us. That it speaks from outside of blinders that we have that it doesn't and helps us to see. What we're going to find together in the passage we'll look at this morning is another message about freedom. Freedom is, uh, is a major theme of Paul in this letter. And it's the focus of this larger section we're in. We talked about freedom last week. We're going to be talking about freedom in the next two weeks where Paul's going to say some really practical things about what it looks like to live in the freedom of the gospel. For today, our biggest task, I believe, is to understand and unpack the message of freedom that comes in this strange presentation. We'll get practical next week. I'm going to ask you to hold on and wait with me for that time. Today, we get to eat our vegetables we get to look into a message that we, in, we trust God meant for us to have, to see the simple message that's been there throughout this whole letter, but to see it presented in a surprising way that we pray will help us all to understand it better. 
Best thing I know to do to account for the uniqueness of this passage is to, is to focus on the story that Paul alludes to at the beginning of what I'm going to read, then to focus on the illustration that he draws out of this story, and then to focus on the point in telling you what he's telling you. So I want to break this down into the story, what the story illustrates, and what we can learn about freedom. The story, what it illustrates, and what we can learn about freedom. Without further ado, let me read to you this text that I've been talking to you about for the last couple of minutes here. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up uh, reading in verse 21, and then I'm going to carry on from 21 all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 31. This is God's word to us. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants, One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it's written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that time, just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to start by making sure you guys know what story Paul is alluding to here. He just alludes to it. He doesn't tell it. But I think we can't get very far in our understanding of this passage unless we know what story he's talking about. So I want to start there. Paul is challenging his, his, his friends, these readers of this letter. He's challenging them not to drift back to law-keeping as the main way that they know they're okay with God. It's not because obedience isn't important. Paul's got a lot to say about obedience and why it matters so much. The reason that he's, that he's banging this drum, if you will, is their temptation to rely on the law, not obey it. This is how one person put it. The difference is between obedience to the law, which is a good thing, which is something Paul celebrates elsewhere, and Jesus did too, and relying on the law. When Paul says that they're those who want to be under the law, that's who he's talking about. Their desire to rely on law-keeping for their standing before God and what you get from God in your life. As if whether God's for you, as if whether you experience his goodness depends on you. Paul doesn't want them drifting back, so he's using the law against them. That's why he says, you who desire to be under the law, don't you read it? 
And then he starts to allude to things that are in the law. Here, when he talks about law, he's talking about the first five books of the Old Testament, not just the Ten Commandments, the set of commands, but the first five books of the Old Testament, all known as the law. And the story he has in mind comes in Genesis. So that's the backstory I want to set up for you before we get into what Paul's doing with this story. In fact, this, this backstory, the story that, that he tells about Hagar, or alludes to about Hagar and Sarah and Isaac and Ishmael, itself has a backstory in Genesis. Earlier in Galatians, Paul talked about the blessing of Abraham. Really, at the center of his letter is who gets in on the blessing God promised to give to Abraham. What's it take to be part of his family? Those who were teaching the Galatians a different gospel than the one Paul taught said, if you want in on the blessing that God promised to Abraham, you've got to obey the law all the way. That's how you get in on the blessing. And Paul's saying, no, 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 there's only one way to get in on the blessing that was promised to Abraham. You've got to believe You've got to have faith in the promise. That's all, you con- that's all you contribute, faith. Because you never had a chance at earning your way into that blessing. When you think about Abraham in this letter, anytime he's alluded to in this letter, what I want you to think about is a world restored, a world healed of everything damaged and broken by sin. Abraham comes on the, scene, on the scene in the stories of Genesis after the world that God created good was thoroughly ruined by sin. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are just one bad thing after another, like a spiral that won't stop, a curse that spreads over everything that God made and touches it all. And then at chapter 12 in Genesis, where the first 11 chapters are talking about curses... Chapter 12 breaks in with Abraham and a promise that through this man and his family, I will bless the world. So the image I used back then when we talked about it in Galatians was imagine imagine sin and its consequences as a tsunami that washes over, destroying everything in its path. And then imagine what God is doing through Abraham as rewinding that footage and and, and watching a restoration of everything that sin had destroyed. It's as big as the whole world. Abraham is not some parochial figure that's just interesting to a handful of people who happen to attach their ethnic lineage to him in the story of the bible it's as big as the whole world abraham is the one through whom god will remake everything so that raises huge questions that matter for everybody how do we get in on the restoration the healing the redemption that sin has made necessary how do we get in on, how do we personally benefit from all that God has promised? So the story Paul alludes to comes after the promise of blessing to Abraham at a point in Abraham's life where he had begun to believe that God's promise on God's terms maybe wasn't trustworthy after all. See, a lot of years go past after the time when God promises to bless Abraham He promises him, even though that he's old, even though his wife has not born children and she is past the age of childbearing, I'm going to give you a son. And then through him, many, many more sons and daughters and I will spread your descendants over all the earth. Abraham loved it. He believed it when he heard that. But then years pass. More years are added on to those. No child. And so Abraham starts to wonder. And maybe maybe there's something, there's some role for me to play in bringing about these things that I've been promised. He and Sarah, his wife, decide together to take matters into their own hands as if God's promise needed a boost from them or as as one person put it, as if God helps those who help themselves. What they decide to do 
was to marry Abraham to one of Sarah's servants, a woman named Hagar. He took her as a second wife. Hagar then bore a son to Abraham, just according to Abraham and Sarah's plan. Abraham goes to God with this son that Hagar had borne to him and says, Here, the inheritance, let it pass to him. Here's my son. And God tells him, No. The inheritance will come through Sarah, just like I promised you. Translation, I I don't need your help to make good on my promise to redeem the world through your family. That was the point all along, that you have nothing to offer and I offer everything to you. Now, that's the story told in Genesis 16 to 21 that Paul is alluding to in these verses that I've just read to you, starting in verse 22 and then through verse 23. Abraham's two sons, Ishmael by a slave woman, Isaac by a free woman. I want to acknowledge what the story raises for us before highlighting the issues it raises for Paul, why he's bringing this story to the forefront here. I mean, I think it's important to just stop and acknowledge the ugliness of this story. Um, It's a story of polygamy which the Bible condemns and which we're right to oppose it's a story of in a way adultery despite the fact that Abraham marries Hagar in order to produce children with her it really the the scenario that's laid out here is not that far removed from what we know as sexual slavery and exploitation by one in power who uses this woman with no mention of her agency in it It's an ugly story. And for the record, it's a story that leads to disaster. It's not a story that's celebrated in Genesis. It's merely reported. One of the remarkable things about the Old Testament, and and this, friends, this goes to the heart of the point we're going to be driving home later. One of the remarkable things about the Old Testament is that the figures in it, even the celebrated ones, even the ones we look to as as, uh, forebears in faith, are not heroes. Their stories are not whitewashed by the Old Testament. There's no attempt to clean them up or to make their behavior look better than what it is. This action that Abraham took was not something God told him to do and it's a decision that ended in disaster. Yes, in the Old Testament, in Genesis, it's told without comment. Yes, it is told from the perspective mostly of Abraham, the perpetrator, not Hagar, the victim. But it is not a go-and-do-likewise story, just the opposite. It's a story of what, of what happens when we take the initiative for bringing God's promises to bear on our lives on our terms. Which goes to what Paul's doing here. I think that's, that's something that needs to be said about our reaction to this story. I think an understandable reaction and one that has to be accounted for. It raises questions. Why, why does Paul tell it here? What is he doing with this story? And Paul himself points us to what he's going to do here in a minute, in verse 23. The reason Paul brings this in, the reason this is relevant for what he's trying to say to his friends, is told to us in verse 23. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh. The son of the free woman was born through promise. One man, one promise, two different ways of getting to it. He wants us to notice two women, one slave and one free. There are two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. 
and that one of these sons was the result of the flesh. Read here, Abraham's initiative, his action, his works. And one of these children was the result of the promise. Read here, God's work, God's grace, God's power, bringing life where there wasn't any. So when you see from this point forward, Paul referring to Hagar and describing the things associated with Hagar in a negative light, as he will do here in a moment. What I want you to see is not Hagar herself, not the individual, not the woman made in God's image with her own life, her own dreams, her own agency, but what she represents in that story, which is Abraham's attempt to define life on his terms. Abraham's action according to the flesh. She doesn't represent herself or her choices, but, the, but a certain path to salvation in Abraham and Sarah's minds that focuses on human strength and human ingenuity and human initiative. And when you see Sarah and the positive portrayal that are the positive associations with Sarah in what Paul's about to do, don't think Sarah herself in this story. Sarah doesn't come off very well in the actual story itself. She's part of the whole, uh, the whole solution through Hagar. It was her idea and Abraham's together. Don't think Sarah and her goodness, Sarah and her moral upstanding character. Think Sarah for what she represents. God's free grace, driving God's unstoppable power at God's initiative. These are the facts Paul wants us to notice from this story. One man and one promise, but there were two women, two mothers, two children, and they represent two very different paths into salvation. Now, I want to get into what the story illustrates because Paul really just alludes to these basic facts. He doesn't, he, he trusts that the people he's writing to know the story and now he's going to do something that's really unusual for him and, and should be unusual for us in the way that he applies this story to his situation. Paul says, did you notice in verse 24 that he even calls out what he's about to do and says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. And what he's trying to do here is, is forecast something. He's not about to give us the meaning of that story as its writer intended us to get it, as its original readers would have understood it, um, as it is defined in its own context. He's not doing that. He's letting us know because he does do that in other places where he, where he uses the Old Testament. He wants us to know the difference between what he would normally do with the Old Testament and what he's doing here. What he's about to do here is to take things that come up in these details of this story as illustrations of a point he's trying to drive home to his friends in Galatia. I think illustration is the best word for it. Maybe even better than allegory or, or typology. These are other words that sometimes come out in how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. I think a, a, a vivid illustration is the best way to describe what Paul is doing here. Because in an illustration, you take a story that's about one thing and you use it to illustrate something different. And that's what Paul means to do here. I want to show you what this story illustrates by walking through the, the, the analogy that Paul builds starting in verse 24. And then we'll talk about how he drives his point home. So you guys still with me? Can you give me a little head nod if you're still with me? I know we're, we're, we're approaching this a little bit differently than we normally do. Thanks for all the head nods. I'd say about two-thirds of you are still with me. Let's talk about what this story illustrates and how Paul gets us there starting in verse 24. I think the most helpful way that I've seen to capture what he's doing here is to imagine, if you can, in your mind, two different buckets. And we're going to put some of the details into one bucket and some of the details into another bucket. Paul's about to make associations for us. He wants us taking certain ideas and details and lumping them together. So on one bucket, 
I want you to, to label it according to flesh. That's the term he uses here. Or you could also label it human initiative, human works, human strength. That's one bucket. And on the other bucket, label it, to use his words again, through promise. Or you could label it, to use other words, God's grace as opposed to human works. God's grace, God's power. In bucket number one, Paul puts Hagar. She represents the covenant made with Moses at Mount Sinai. So Mount Sinai and Moses, they also go in bucket number one. Look at how he says this in verse 24. These two women, Sarah and Hagar, are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So here's some things to put in that first bucket. Mount Sinai, that's the place where the law was given. That's where Moses met with God, received the law, and gave it to Israel. Don't miss the shock value in what Paul just did right here. For Israel, they saw Mount Sinai as the symbol of their liberation. They had been slaves in Egypt. Now they're free. Now God's going to establish them in this new place as their own people, their own nation. And Paul's saying there, right there, where you thought of yourselves as free, your slavery set in on you because of what you did with the law. So Hagar goes with the old covenant, the covenant with Moses, which happens at Mount Sinai and leads to slavery. So those are the things to go in that, that bucket. Hagar, Hagar, old covenant with Moses at Sinai leading to slavery. The last thing that he puts in that bucket is the present Jerusalem. And this will be the other shock value of what he's saying here. Verse 25, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, you know, where all those people live that you guys don't like very much. That's what he's saying. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. The present Jerusalem. The centerpiece for the kind of religion you're trying to impose on the Galatians again with the temple and all of its regulations, belongs with Arabia, belongs with Ishmael, belongs with Hagar, belongs with slavery. Paul is shocking them into his point. It's one of the reasons he uses this story. That's bucket number one. All of these things are attached to human initiative, human works, human obedience in order to get God on your side. And that is a kind of slavery. That's what he's saying there. In bucket number two, you have to use your imagination a little bit more. He doesn't fill in the details quite so uh, explicitly. He starts there. These two women, these women are two covenants. So in bucket number two, the through promise, the God's grace and God's power bucket, you put a new covenant. Not the old covenant, not the covenant with Moses, but a new set of promises that come through the prophets after the covenant with Moses has been broken. Israel sins that their sins bring on God's judgment. They are conquered by a foreign power and taken off into exile. And in the context of that, prophets look ahead to a new day when the people would come back, when the promises made to Abraham would actually become reality for them in their experience. And with that new day comes a new covenant, a new set of promises to be, to be viewed over against the, the covenant with Moses. That goes in bucket number two. Sarah is associated with this. Not because she was around when the prophets made these promises of the new covenant, but because Sarah represented promise, represented life where there wasn't life. Just like the new covenant represents promise, a you contribute nothing and receive everything sort of scenario, just like Abraham and Sarah. And with this bucket goes one more detail the promise of a new Jerusalem. A Jerusalem, he says, that's above, 
a Jerusalem soon to come down, a Jerusalem free and full of promised children. Friend Sarah herself, again, she wasn't around for these promises. What she did and didn't do in the story, that isn't the point any more than Hagar was the point. The point is the two paths that these two women represent, the two covenants that Paul's associating with them, the path of human effort to establish life on your terms, the path of promise through which you just receive and have nothing to give. The Jerusalem above, well, that one's coming down through the promise of God's grace and God's power, which alone can bring about this new world. They have nothing to do but believe and wait and hope. Friends, I think that what Paul says in verse 27 gives us the key to seeing this whole illustration. What he's been doing from beginning to end of this section, all of it is packed into the fact that he chooses to quote in verse 27 from one of these prophets, from Isaiah, specifically Isaiah chapter 54. This is one of those places where the prophets look ahead to a time when Jerusalem would be restored. Isaiah pictured that time for us, the city to come, like a woman who is barren, unable to conceive, and abandoned by her husband. Desolate is how he describes her. That is Jerusalem as she is. That is Jerusalem after these powers came in and destroyed the city and took its people away. And it's into this Jerusalem, on her own, a wasteland destroyed by her enemies. It is this Jerusalem that Isaiah says will one day be full and free. The children of the desolate one will be more than those of she who has a husband. How will that happen? How will what has been destroyed be restored? How will the blessing of Abraham come to this land and through it to all the peoples of the earth? How? That's the question Paul raises by quoting from Isaiah 54 here. And the answer he's prepared us for is really straightforward too. Jerusalem gets restored. The world gets set right. Not through obedience to the law. Not according to the flesh. There's no hope, there's no future that way. The law is what brought her slavery and her desolation and her fruitlessness in the first place. It's failing to obey the law that got Jerusalem to where she is. There's no path to healing and joy in the law. There's only one path to the restoration of Isaiah 54. And it's the same path in place through Sarah, the same path promised through the prophets, the path opened up by the coming of God's own son to live and die and rise again for those who trust in him. It's the path of promise, God's power to act on God's initiative driven by God's grace. That's the only way Jerusalem gets restored. A unilateral intervention, as one person put it. Same way that Sarah conceived Isaac. Unilateral intervention of God's power. And now, as John Stott puts it in his commentary, in place of the old covenant and its commands comes the new covenant with its promises. The old covenant, Moses at Sinai, comes with commands. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. The new covenant promised through Jeremiah, the key words are, I will, I will, I will, I will. Now, Paul's using what I've been describing as a really surprising argument from the Bible 
to make a point that by now I hope is really familiar to you, to the Galatians in this letter and to us as folks who are studying it. The freedom of the gospel comes only as a gift and never as an achievement, period. The message of this interesting and unusual argument is the same message that the letter's been making over and over and over again. Freedom, the freedom of the gospel comes only as a gift, never as an achievement. So what our, what our role in it, what's ours to do is to receive it and to live inside of it. Friends, it's only ever a gift. It's never an achievement. This is what we can learn about freedom from this story. And I just want to chew on this for a few minutes here. In verses 28 and 31, where Paul's driving home his point, he's calling them to live in this freedom. Verse 28, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. That's who you are. You belong on that path, the Sarah, new covenant, Jerusalem above path. That's who you are. Verse 31 reinforces the same message. We're not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Remember again, Hagar's not the point. It's what she represents. Human initiative, that's not our source. Our source is God's unilateral intervening power. That's who we are. Don't forget that. Your freedom is a gift. Why in the world would you want to attach any effort to it? That's the point, too, of the reference he makes, the last reference to Hagar and Sarah's story in verses 29 and 30. Here he's talking about this part in the story where Ishmael, when he gets older and Isaac comes along, mocks him at one point. And for Paul, that, that's like a trigger to him to, to say, these two paths, flesh and promise, they're always against one another. You will be opposed if you claim the promise by those who want to see you working. Those two, those two paths are incompatible. That's why he quotes what Sarah told Abraham, cast out the slave woman and her son. It's a harsh moment, a terrible moment in the story. Paul's quoting it, but for his own purpose here. He's saying the two paths are incompatible. There is no promise plus legal obedience, human effort path meshed together in some sort of way. No, no, it's either or, and they're opposed to one another. So you're children of the promise. Don't forget that. Freedom only ever comes by gift, never as an achievement. That's his point. And you need to know that this morning, friends, because it's our temptation always not to believe it. I especially want to speak to you if you've not had a lot of background in the Bible and don't know much about what it teaches. Sometimes I think we can fall into an assumption that's very dangerous and very different from what's actually true about the Bible. The Bible is not primarily a book of stories that show you what to do or who to be like. Not primarily. There are some models in it, but that's not mainly what it is. It's primarily a story of what God is doing despite human incompetence and sin. (laughs) To overcome human incompetence and sin. It's not a story about human moral improvement through a positive example, but about God's promise to bring freedom in life where there was only bondage and death. So don't think book of virtues when you see the Bible. A sort of set of morality tales that then call you to go and do likewise. It's not that kind of message In fact, even the the moral revulsion that we should feel when we hear the story of Abraham and Hagar is part of the point that Paul wants to make here. The point in God's promise to bless Abraham was never how amazing Abraham was and certainly not how great his descendants would be. 
You know, if, if that was the point, then what we would have is Father Abraham here, shining bastion of perfect morality. And then anyone who wants to be with Abraham and get what he got needs to look like Abraham. You need to be one of his descendants. The family resemblance better show up. So go be like him. But Paul's pulling from a story where Abraham is clearly no model, where he is off the rails, where he has stepped outside of faith to take things into his own hand. Don't be like Abraham. In fact, reject the model Abraham gave you and trust the promise that God gave Abraham. The point is that God only ever saves because he promises to, despite the people involved, not because of them. This is important to remember partly to understand just how powerful and beautiful it is that Paul goes to Isaiah 54 to drive his point home. When Paul goes to Isaiah 54, promising that this Jerusalem that's now empty, now desolate and destroyed, this barren Jerusalem who has no children, when he goes there and says, no, this Jerusalem will rejoice. This Jerusalem will have to enlarge its tents. This Jerusalem's about to be a big, huge family. He can only go there because of what he says in chapter 53. See, chapter 54, this picture of a world restored comes on the heels of the picture of a suffering servant in Isaiah 53 whose suffering on behalf of his people is what makes the restoration possible in the first place. Paul quotes this call to rejoice because it follows words like these. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, not for his. He had none. He was innocent. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Think of it. Rejoice! Oh, Jerusalem, the barren one shall be full. Enlarge those tents. How did that peace come? On him was the chastisement that brought that peace. And with his stripes and only his stripes we are healed. Because all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, Abraham and all his descendants after him, have turned to his own way, according to flesh, on his initiative. And the Lord has laid on him, the servant, the innocent one, the iniquity of us all. And that's why Isaiah 53 can end looking ahead. Out of the anguish of his soul, the innocent one bruised for us. He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, just like he is. And he shall bear their iniquities. That's Isaiah 53. That's where it ends. Now, because of the one chastised in your place, rejoice. Enlarge the place of your tent. Your family's about to grow beyond your wildest imagination. Because to get in on this family, you don't have to earn your place. To get in on this family, you don't have a contest in front of you. You must win. There is no test that you may or may not pass. He can promise a family that Jerusalem's borders won't be able to contain. Because he knows it's a promise that's not based on the people it's offered to. 
but on the free grace of the one who offers it. And that's a promise you can believe against all odds, against everything you know about yourself. It's a promise that you could be made righteous despite what you've done because of the one who was righteous and then broken for you. If this is where freedom comes from, only as a gift, never as an achievement, then this is a freedom that anybody can get in on. Anyone can know this freedom. Do you know it? If you're not a Christian here this morning, I want you to know that you can be free today. You can, you can actually be free today. There's nothing more for you to do except hear the message that Christ has borne the sins you deserve to bear so that you could have a freedom you don't deserve to enjoy. If you hear that message and it sounds right, it sounds like life, it sounds like something you want to accept, you know what you have to do? Just accept it. Just accept you don't deserve it and claim this promise. We'd love the chance to talk to you about what that might look like. But what you need to know now is that you don't have to change a thing except what you're trusting in as your hope in life and death. If you're a Christian, I wonder, are you enjoying the freedom God has promised and purchased for you in Jesus? And you think about this. Paul right here is writing to people he believes are Christians. In verses 28 and 31, he talks about them as children of the promise. He refers to them as brothers. He believes they are already free by the gospel and yet not fully enjoying the freedom that the gospel offers them. He's writing to them because they're tempted. They're being tugged back into this old way. And friends, you will be too. Even as Christians, living in this freedom takes a fight that we must fight together. Because just like the ones Paul wrote to, uh, we're going to be tempted towards performance in our strength, towards setting the terms for our lives. We're going to have to fight a daily battle against our pride and self-reliance. So let me just suggest you do this. Let me suggest that you ask, along with your friends, a few questions about your freedom and the extent to which you're enjoying it right now. Where do you feel you have to hide? That's a pretty good indicator of where you're not enjoying the freedom of the gospel. See, if we are who we are by God's grace on his terms and his initiative, then we have nothing to hide from anyone else. If we feel like we have to hide to save face, to promote ourselves in a, different, in, in a way that's different from what's real, well, it's a sign that we think we have something to contribute to who we are in the world and to how we're known. If you feel the need to hide, you're lacking the freedom Jesus has offered you. Where is that? Think about who you can talk to about it. Where do you feel you must prove yourself? Where do you feel driven to perform, to make a mark or be known in a certain way? There's a good sign that you're seeing there a place where you're not enjoying the freedom that the gospel has offered to you. Hey, what, you're, what you're being pulled to when you feel the need to prove something is a way of flesh. That old covenant, that old mentality for how you get to enjoy what you enjoy in your life. There's no, there's no future there for you, friends. Where is that? Recognize it. Ask your friends to help you and, and then repent of it. 
and pray for freedom. Here's one more question to ask yourself. Where do you fear for your future? I mean, think to this story of Abraham that Paul's given us. What was it that drove him away from the thing that was promised to him into actions that he thought he needed to take to go ahead and hurry things along? He was afraid for his future. He looked ahead. He wanted what he'd been promised, but it wasn't there yet. And he was starting to wonder whether it would ever be there if he didn't do something about it. So Abraham, seeing a future that he longed for, took steps to make it real, according to flesh. So we're vulnerable. We're going to be tempted not to enjoy the freedom that we should have as those who've been loved by God and Jesus where we feel so fearful for our future for terms we want it to meet that we feel drawn into micromanaging that future. Where is that for you? Where are you struggling to wait and trying to help God toward the promise that he's made on his initiative? You may not be able to identify that by yourself. So I want to encourage you to talk to your friends about it. And I want to encourage all of us. I mean, one of the best, we're going to talk in the next two weeks about ways that this freedom shows up in life. It wasn't the burden of this text. But I want to encourage all of us to know that one way that the freedom of the gospel shows up in our life together is going to be helping one another, as Paul helped the Galatians, to recognize where we're not fully enjoying it and to push further into it through prayer and repentance and faith. So I'm going to pray now that God will help us to do that work together, the work that he's given us to do. And then we'll continue to sing together this morning. Father, I pray that because of what you've spoken and because of the spirit whose power backs your word, we would all enjoy the freedom of the gospel today at a deeper level than we have before. We thank you for feeding us this morning by your word. And we pray that you would give us the instinct, the wisdom the perseverance to continue feeding one another this word. We pray that you would help us to live open lives before each other, to not have to, to not feel the need to pretend we're better than we are or to hide what we don't want seen. And I pray that when we receive honesty and openness from others, we'd be gracious and patient receivers of that honesty and that we would work together to bring Jesus to bear on whatever it is that we're facing. We pray that the freedom of the gospel would be not just something that's been promised to us, but something we get to experience every day. And we pray that in the name of Jesus, who has purchased that freedom for us. Amen.